Let's pray as we prepare to uh, journey further through this wonderful letter called Colossians. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, this morning we echo the prayer of our King, Jesus Christ, that your kingdom come and your will be done. In our church, may this be the case in our homes and in our families, in our workplaces, classrooms, wherever we are, dear God, we pray. And we ask that you would continue, Lord, as you have been faithful to shape us, shape us as branches who bear fruit, who are connected really and vitally to the vine, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that this time in Colossians this morning would be a furtherance in that shaping And Lord, that you would continue to make us people of contours that look like your son. We are being transformed into his image. Glorious thing, Lord. We thank you for that. We pray, continue your work in us for your name's sake. Amen. In 1990, I was in my final year of music studies over at Humber College in Rexdale, Ontario. And that year I was given the opportunity to study with a man named Barry Elms, who is one of the greatest jazz drummers that Canada has ever produced, really just a master of the instrument. Prior to my time studying with Barry, um, for sure I had learned a few things perhaps on the drums, but in large measure, I had got into the habit of defaulting to the familiar And I'd also picked up some very bad habits along the way in terms of technical things, uh, habits that I was not even aware of. Lessons with Barry stretched me, (laughs) they challenged me to be sure. His approach to the drums made me do some quite painful uh, rethinking and retooling in my own approach and trying to get rid of some of those default patterns and bad habits that I'd picked up that actually had become a hindrance. Well, maybe you've had a similar experience in your life. Uh, You've been doing something one way for years and years and years, and then suddenly now you're confronted by a master of the craft and your whole world gets rocked. Uh, You see now that there's another way, there's a better way a more productive and fruitful way to approach the thing that you had already been studying or doing. Well, that's basically, friends, what happens in this next part of Colossians that we are looking at this morning. Many of us, I think, have been uh, praying in one way for years with the same basic patterns, the same basic assumptions, the same basic focus, the same basic motivations. But now the Apostle Paul shows up and he models for us what we might call a masterful approach to praying. This is a way of praying that very significantly, we need to see, has been inspired by God, written down under the Spirit's inspiration, has been written down for our instruction in the pages of Scripture. And in many ways, as we'll see hopefully this morning, Paul's way of praying looks so different than many of the ways 
that we pray. So I hope we can learn together here this morning. So we're beginning this morning at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul writes, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So here Paul now is looping back, isn't he, to what he's already said in verses 3 and 4 when he had talked there about praying in thanksgiving for the Colossians ever since he and Timothy had heard of their faith in Christ and their love for the church. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. That is, our prayers for you Colossians have been constant, Paul says. Again and again, our prayers for you have gone up. Our prayers for you, Colossians, who are strangers to us because we've never met you in person, our prayers have gone up from our hearts to God. And what had been the content of those prayers? Well, I want you to think for a moment again about your own praying. On most days when you sit down to pray, what sorts of things do you almost automatically pray about? What are your defaults? What is your usual focus in your petitions? Well, let's watch now together. Let's watch how this called, authorized, sent, inspired apostle of Jesus Christ, let's watch how he prays. So here's what Paul beseeches God for. He says in verse 9, Asking, or we ask, that you, Colossian believers, may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So get this again, friends. Here's Paul praying for people he'd never even met, praying that these people might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So let's go slowly through this together. Paul's prayer concern here is that these Colossian believers, notice, would be filled with, saturated with, characterized by the knowledge of God's will. Paul desires that God would deeply and profoundly affect these believers with knowledge of God's designs, with knowledge of God's purposes for God's whole creation. Paul desires that these church folk would be filled to the brim with knowledge of what God is doing in his world and what God will do in his world. Paul wants God to inundate these people with a worldview that sees every single thing and every single event around them in terms of God and in terms of God's purposes. The knowledge of his will. And picking up now on the last part of the verse, Paul wants this knowledge of God's will to do what? To come flooding from God 
in all or by means of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, if I mention the phrase to you, Shakespearean plays, you will know that I'm talking about plays written by Shakespeare, right? Shakespearean plays are plays belonging to Shakespeare, plays that have been crafted by Shakespeare. The same sort of thing is going on here in our text. So following the arguments of Greg Beale and Gordon Fee, that word, notice, spiritual, in verse 9, should be understood as having a capital S. So that spiritual here means belonging to the Spirit of God, or given by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is the source of the wisdom and understanding that Paul mentions here. Paul has been asking God to fill the Colossian believers with knowledge of God's will by means of all spirit-given wisdom and understanding. And there's a strong backing for that argument. Listen, notice that in verse 19, or in verse 9, sorry, Paul mentions this triad here, notice, of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. All of which, we argue, come from God to believers. And with this particular triad, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, Paul is doing what? He's hearkening back to the book of Exodus. Specifically, to Exodus 31.3, and Exodus 35, verses 31 and 32, where this precise triad, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, are all linked directly with the Spirit of God, and they are given to a man there named Bezalel, who is a craftsman in the construction of the tabernacle. The wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of the Spirit was given to Bezalel in those two Exodus passages so that with divine enablement, Bezalel could skillfully, worshipfully craft the elements in the tabernacle that he was responsible for. Paul brings in those same three elements in Colossians 1.9 and he links them with the spirit, with that word spirit Ual, spiritual. Paul is praying, in essence, he is petitioning that God would cause believers to increase in the Spirit's wisdom and skill and worship and godliness like Bezalel of old, so as to walk, verse 10, notice, so as to walk, so as to conduct one's life in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. I wonder how many of us recognize this morning that the very purpose of our lives is to please the God who fashioned us. 
spirit-given wisdom and understanding, verse 9, is given to you and I so that we would conduct our lives, verse 10, in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. The purpose of the spirit-given knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of verse 9 is the practical purpose that is voiced now in verse 10. You see that? That we would conduct ourselves worthy of the Lord. The truth, friends, is this, that God gives us what we need in order to please him. Yes? He gives us what we need in order to please him. Him. God gives us the internal fruit, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of his will, verse 9, so that we would produce external fruit, verse 10, walking through our lives in a manner that brings pleasure to him. Now again, let's just pause here for a moment, and again, I'll remind you, Paul is praying for believers he's never met that those believers would please God in their conduct, having been given the Spirit's knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. What a way to pray. If you're like me, this kind of praying almost seems foreign. How much we have to learn from the prayers that are recorded in Scripture. May our priorities in prayer increasingly reflect the priorities of God. To review just briefly here, before we move forward, Paul's petition is in verse 9, that God would fill believers with the knowledge of God's will by means of spirit-given wisdom and understanding. And the purpose of that petition is in verse 10. Paul wants verse 9 to happen so that believers would conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the Lord. But what does this God-pleasing conduct look like exactly? Well, Paul now elaborates on that. The kind of conduct that is worthy of the Lord, that brings pleasure to him, is four things. It is bearing fruit in every good work, number one. It is increasing in the knowledge of God, number two. And then in verse 11 is number three, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And then finally, number four is in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Notice this, friends. What will it mean for you in your life this very week to work, to converse, to act, to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord, in a manner that brings pleasure to your God. Well, it will mean these four things, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of him, being strengthened in his power for patience with joy, and giving thanks to him. Let's think a little bit together. I know it's work to go through Paul's writing, <laughs> but let's think together on each of these four just a little bit. So first of all, bearing fruit in every good work. Paul has already talked about fruit bearing in this letter. 
Back in verse 6, he talked about it. And in verse 6, we remember, if you were with us last week, in verse 6, it was the gospel that was bearing fruit in people's lives in keeping with that original Genesis 128 command to bear fruit. But now in verse 10, it's the people themselves. It's the believers themselves who Paul prays will bear fruit, again in keeping with Genesis 128. So if you're a believer this morning, we believers are mandated, in fact, to bear fruit in every good work, to, to, to have God's glory blossom forward, outward to the world, in our words, in our deeds, in our actions, since the Holy Spirit indwells us, yes? So my friend, I ask you this morning, under the Spirit's leadership, examine yourself. Where in your life is more good fruit necessary? Where is it being required? Make it an issue of prayer. The second of the four things in your life this week that will bring pleasure to God is your increasing in the knowledge of God. But this is rather curious in a way. Get this. Paul has just prayed, if you have your text in front of you, Paul has just prayed in verse 9 that the Colossian believers would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And now here in this very next verse, he says that an outcome of being filled with the knowledge of God's will is that believers would increase in the knowledge of God. <laughs> so it seems a little strange, doesn't it? Be filled with knowledge so that then you will increase in knowledge. But we need to carefully note the flow of things here. Notice this, knowledge of God's will, verse 9, ends up producing fruit in believers' lives, middle of verse 10, in the form of good works and deeds, which leads in turn to even greater knowledge of God at the tail end of verse 10. So this is interesting, isn't it? Spirit-filled believer, as you engage in good works this week, and as you bear kingdom fruit, your knowledge of God will grow even more. And this will please God, and this will glorify God. And then the third aspect of your walk with God that will bring pleasure to him this week is in verse 11. It is you being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, in order for you to do God's will, my friend, you need strength. Would you agree with that? In order for you to endure, in order for you to be patient in a way that honors God, you need his help. God needs to strengthen you so that you will live obediently and live fruitfully this week to the praise of his glory. Just consider for a moment those words at the end of this verse. Endurance, patience, and joy. 
So when the difficult person approaches you, you know that person who always look, looks as if they've been eating lemons and sucking on cement. <laughs> that sour person who has a perfect record of complaining, grumbling, you are going to need God's patience. You will need the endurance that God gives. You will need the joy <laughs> that God provides. Why? That God may be glorified in your conduct. It's interesting here that the original Greek word, listen, the original Greek word in this text that is translated into English as patience is the same Greek word that we find in the Greek version of Exodus 34, verse 6. Paul knew that text in Greek in Exodus so well. There, God is described as slow to anger. The same Greek word that translates as patience here in Colossians 1.11 translates as slow to anger in Exodus 34, 6. Our God is slow to anger. Our God is patient. Our God is forbearing. And he desires that we, his children, look like him. Be imitators of God, Paul says in another place in Ephesians. He desires that we look like him, that we be patient and slow to anger like him. And in fact, the same Greek word, interestingly enough, is also found in Galatians 5.22. Some of you know that passage in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Patience is one segment of that fruit of the Spirit. Joy is also, by the way, God expects these things of, of us. He expects these things of us. But concerning patience in particular, oh, do we need, I don't know about you, but I need supernatural assistance to be this way. This does not come naturally to me. Maybe it doesn't to you either. Paul prays for believers that our patience would look like God's patience with God's help. I ask you, do we pray for one another in this way. Let's learn from Paul. And then finally, the fourth thing that pleases God in our walk with him is thanksgiving in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. But what happens now is that Paul goes on to outline specific reasons for thanksgiving in the life of the believer in the rest of verse 12 and through verses 13 and 14. Specific reasons to be thankful. Let's consider this. Why should our hearts and our lips be in the habit of expressing thanks to our Father in heaven? Why should Christians be a truly thankful people, the most thankful people that are alive on the earth? Well, Paul gives us several reasons now. He says to you and I, in verse 12, believer, that the Father has done what? Has qualified you, you made the qualifying round. Congratulations, believer. Has qualified you to share in what? In the inheritance of the saints in light. That is to say, 
that the first person of the Trinity, the Father, has made you worthy, has fitted you, has made you sufficient, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, you cannot qualify yourself for this inheritance. Please understand that. In his grace, sheer grace, the Father has done this qualifying for you, believer, without your input. So should you not be thankful to him for this? Now, this language of inheritance, of course, comes over from the Old Testament. In Old Testament times, what was the inheritance that God had promised to his people? It was the land of Canaan. But as Paul writes to the Colossians now in the era of the New Testament, the inheritance promise has escalated. Our inheritance as believers under the new covenant is an inheritance that according to 1 Peter 1 verse 4, it's an inheritance, listen, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Yes. Our inheritance as believers in Jesus Christ is one, we need to understand, that earthly rot and earthly situations cannot alter and cannot touch. And our inheritance is described in Hebrews 1.14 as salvation. Final and full salvation which will include our eternal life on the new earth. What did Jesus say? The meek shall inherit not just the parcel of land in Canaan, but the earth, Matthew 5, 5. And so surely this assured promise of our great inheritance should spark thanksgiving in us which pleases our Lord. Of all people on this planet, Christians should be the most thankful people that there are. Would you agree? And Paul goes on in verse 13 then to describe another related and very magnificent reason for Christians to be a thoroughly, oh, a thoroughly thankful people. He says this, notice, he, that is the Father, the Father, has delivered us, hasn't he, from the domain of darkness and done what? Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Literally in the Greek, it's the kingdom of the son of his love. It's beautiful. Now, Paul has just mentioned, notice this, he's just mentioned the concept of inheritance, verse 12. So in Old Testament times, Israel would receive the inheritance called the promised land. But before they could ever lay hold of that inheritance of land, they needed to be rescued, didn't they? They needed to be delivered. They needed to be set free from their bondage under Egypt. The Exodus was God rescuing his people from the domain of Egypt and transferring them, first of all, to Sinai, 
to receive the law, and then into the land of their inheritance, where they would become a kingdom under David. My believing friends, in order for us to receive our inheritance, in order for us to gain our final and full salvation, imagine it, our resurrected, glorified bodies walking with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. In order for that to happen, God must first pluck us out of our slavery to sin and transfer us into his kingdom. And for the believer, he has delivered us. Amen and hallelujah. This is an established fact. Now notice the words here carefully. Who has rescued us? He has rescued us. We could never lift ourselves. Never lift ourselves out of the tyranny to sin, death, and the devil that we were under. God has delivered us all by himself. There has been a new exodus that he has undertaken for us. And he has done this. It is a finished, already achieved deliverance wrought by the cross and resurrection of God's dear son. And what is it exactly that God has delivered the Christian person from? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. What is this domain of darkness? It is an authority that as believers we were once captive to. It is an authority that is diametrically opposed to God. The domain of darkness is a tyranny over us and a tyranny in us that ruthlessly controls us. And while in this domain of darkness, here's the irony, we think we are free to be ourselves. But in fact, we are far from free. This domain of darkness is destructive, it is enslaving, it is evil, and in John Webster's words, it is also a domain that is lawless and illegitimate. In this domain of darkness, the fingerprints, the handprints of sin, death, and the devil are all over the place. God, for the believer, has delivered us from this awful domain. Praise God and hallelujah. And, says Paul, notice, he has transferred us, he has transported us. If you want, he has swooped down in his cosmic helicopter and extracted us out of this domain of darkness and transplanted us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We haven't transferred ourselves anywhere. God has done this transference all by himself. Again, in the words of Webster, he says, God has directly, listen, has directly and sovereignly snatched us up and set us down again 
and thereby decisively altered our situation. Are you with me today? God has decisively altered your situation, believer. To use a Star Trek analogy, God has beamed us, right, forever and permanently into a whole new reality. As believers, we are now saints of light, to quote verse 12, notice that. God has transferred us out of that thick spiritual darkness that we were in, enslaved to, and he's brought us into the radiant, blazing light, the luminescent, bright shining kingdom of his beloved son. And if there's anyone who knew all about this, it was the Apostle Paul. When he had first met the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road, Paul had been living in the domain of darkness. But now a piercing light from heaven flashed around him on that road. It was a light that according to Paul's own testimony in Acts 26, 13, this was a light that had been brighter than the sun. Everything changed for Paul on that day. His entire life paradigm, this is what Christ does to us, his whole life direction had now experienced this seismic, tectonic shift. God had delivered Paul from the domain of darkness and had transferred him, relocated him to the kingdom of his beloved son. And Paul was so stunned, his whole being stunned by what had happened that he had to spend years in Arabia <laughs> trying to figure out exactly how to read his Jewish scriptures. My friend, I wonder, has this happened to you? Has this happened in your life? We can be in church for our whole lives and never have it happen. Has this happened to you? To be relocated into the kingdom of God's beloved son means what? It means that our lives now need to reflect this new location. In Arthur Glasser's way of putting it, he says, Christians are to be walking, talking demonstrations that a new order has entered the world. A new order, order has entered the world, giving meaning, direction, and hope to history. Yes, indeed, my friend, my believing brother, my believing sister in Christ, the motivations of a godless world are not to be our motivations any longer. The accepted patterns and values and methodologies of the godless world are not to be our patterns and values and methodologies any longer. We are saints of light, believers, who have been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves in this world, but not of this world. Our worldview is different. Our talking is different. Our conduct is different. Our service is different. The places we go and the things that we hold dear are different. Our treasure is different. My believing friend, are you different because of King Jesus and his kingdom in which you now live? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, our thanksgiving as Christian people blossoms 
out of this magnificent reality. And Paul finishes this section of his letter by saying in verse 14 that it's, notice, in this beloved Son of God that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So just as Israel had been redeemed, released from slavery in Egypt at the expenditure of the Passover lambs with their blood smeared on their houses. So we believers are redeemed from our slavery to sin. We are forgiven of our sins at the far more extravagant cost of Christ's shed blood, his death on the cross. He is our true Passover lamb. And as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption, how? Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Are you thankful this morning? Well, wow. What a way to pray in verses 9 through 14. This is just so rich. This has such a breathtaking sweep about it. And again, I'll remind you one more time, Paul prayed in this very profound way for a group of believers he never had met. He petitioned God to fill these strangers with the knowledge of his will. He prayed that the Spirit would supply these people with wisdom and understanding so that they would walk worthy of the Lord by bearing fruit by increasing in the knowledge of God, by being strengthened in the spirit, by giving thanks to God for the inheritance that he's given to believers by the extravagant price of his own son's life. What a way to pray. And may our own prayer lives expand and be enhanced. May our own prayer lives grow steadily toward these biblical, God-centered God-magnifying proportions. And may each of us this morning be mightily encouraged by word and spirit as he shows us in this passage the realities, the possibilities for those of us who are in him. Think of your situation, believer. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness. You have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. God is ready to fill you with the knowledge of his will in spirit-given wisdom and understanding, and because of what God supplies to you, you can and you must walk worthy of him, bearing fruit this week, growing in the knowledge of him, being strengthened by him for all endurance and patience with joy, and giving thanks to him, ambassador of Jesus Christ, go forth from here this morning rejoicing and praying. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we, we confess to you this morning that so often uh, we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. And so we run to you, we run to your word for help. Spirit, we ask that you would help our prayers this week, that you would influence our praying, 
that you would steer and direct our praying, in some cases that you would refashion and remodel our prayers for your pleasure. And I pray that this week you would remind each of us, all of your saints, Lord God, to come back to this passage that you have inspired in Colossians that is one of many in the New Testament that teaches us what to pray for. This week, teach us, Lord, how to pray, whether we're at work, whether we're in the home, at school, wherever we are, for your sake, Lord, would you do this, and for your mission in your world. Help us, Lord, and you are deserved of all our praise. In Jesus' mighty and saving name, amen.